0: I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. BMI. Three very loaded letters. And rightfully so. For decades, Body Mass Index the value derived from the mass and height of a person has been used as a crude means of gauging a person's overall health status. It's the metric that dictates whether a person is labeled underweight, normal weight, overweight, or obese, and ultimately determines whether or not your child will learn that there is something fundamentally wrong with their body. Anecdotally, I can tell you I've lost track of how many patients I've seen in my therapy practice who cite a school-based BMI measurement program as one of the first significant injuries to their developing body image. They recall feelings of humiliation being publicly weighed, shame spirals setting in when those obesity report cards were sent home to their parents, and lingering feelings of failure that still haunt them well into adulthood— In many cases, these same adults have also struggled to find a lifelong love of movement, which consequently negatively impacts their overall well-being. And yet, this seemingly sadistic practice of weighing kids at school has well-meaning roots connected to sweeping public health initiatives that really do want good things for kids. Good things like health and physical activity, it's just that these school-based BMI measurement programs have harmed more than they could ever help. Many of us, particularly body-positive nurturers, know this intuitively. I mean, weighing kids at school, it just sounds like a bad idea. But the truth is, until recently, there hasn't been much scientific evidence to conclusively confirm that, indeed, this is a detrimental practice. My guest today, Dr. Hannah Thompson, An epidemiologist from Berkeley Public Health is one of the researchers, though, responsible for crunching the numbers that quantitatively shed some very compelling scientific light that bodes very well for much needed policy reform. Hannah, welcome to the show. Kick us off by telling us a bit about the work you do.
1: Sure, sure. So I am an epidemiologist. I'm at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley, but I definitely took a very sort of rambling path to get here. I was not, you know, 10 years old and said, I really want to crunch numbers. I want to do science. And my focus is on physical activity and kids. But I think for me, kind of the nexus of this work for me started right after I graduated from college. So many years ago, and I did a, um, I rode my bicycle across the country with four of my friends and we started in Seattle, Washington, and we ended in Rehoboth, Delaware. It took us about three months, but we did the trip to raise money for an organization, a national nonprofit called Trips for Kids. And they take kids out on mountain biking trips and they have chapters across the country. So we raised money for them and then rode from chapter to chapter and went on trips with these kids, Um, you know, kids who are doing the program in different cities. And I think that was really, you know, I'd been, you know, an athlete in high school and college, but I think that was the first time that sort of more cerebrally or academically the importance of physical activity really kind of connected for me. And not only just physical activity, but physical activity coupled with being outside and with being with peers and, you know, coupled with the opportunity to socialize as well as the opportunity to be coached, to have a mentor, somebody from your community who looked like you, who was, you know, introducing you to something new and teaching you so many things about life through the process. And so, you know, after that trip, I went on to be a PE teacher for several years in a middle school in Oakland. Um, And then I went and did my master's in public health and then eventually my doctorate in epidemiology, which is, you know, really how I became interested in the research. But my focus now really is on school and community-based opportunities to increase physical activity for kids, with, you know, a genuine interest in trying to sort of reduce health disparities and, you know, using a bad pun, level the playing field, right? So that more kids have the opportunity to be physically active.
0: Yeah. I mean, in physical activity, it just has so many positive effects for humans of all ages. And I mean, we have been trying to be more aware of different levels of ability and sort of have that inclusive idea that movement might look very different for one person that's completely able bodied versus somebody that isn't so kind of bearing that in mind but physical activity is as positive as it is and all the kind of myriad ways that it enhances well-being, it can get tricky. Like when we're talking about exercise, especially in diet culture, and we know from other researchers we've talked to that exercise for the sake of, let's say, weight loss or appearance related reasons has also been found to have some not such good outcomes. Right. So I am curious, kind of bearing that in mind, like what, you've learned about effective ways to increase youth
1: physical activity to improve health. Right. I mean, I think one thing that I learned early on in school that has always really stuck with me and helped motivate me in this work is that a person, and this has been based on research in adults, but an adult's cardiorespiratory fitness is actually a stronger predictor of their risk for mortality than their BMI is. And so I think in sort of, we always think about weight, oh, you've gotta be skinny to be healthy. You need you know, this, you're gonna get diabetes if you gain too much weight, all of these sorts of things. But to me, that was always kind of like, it goes back to that health at any size thing. You can be incredibly fit and have a BMI above 25, right? Have a BMI that's technically in that overweight range. And so for me, that's something I've always, when I was teaching kids and then, you know, as I've been doing this work is saying activity and movement can look like so many different things. It doesn't have to be, you know, you're the star of your basketball team. It doesn't have to be, you know, begrudgingly sweating it out on a treadmill for an hour in the gym and secretly crying about it. Oh, um, it just sounds I awful. Think, yeah. Right, <laughs> Even you, Shudder. I think what's so important about physical activity, especially exposing kids to positive physical activity opportunities, early in life, just like everything else, right? You establish those habits early in life is really important for developing that love of movement. So things like recess in schools, things like physical education, which can be, when done well, is probably, from a public health perspective, the most important thing we could do as a society would be to fully invest in physical education in schools for our students. And that really is because PE is one of the only opportunities students have, regardless of background regardless of the family they come from where they live to get high quality physical activity and that's because you know recess only happens in the elementary years and you have that opportunity to sit on the side if you want to not all kids live in neighborhoods where it's safe to walk to and from school or to play in a park after school not all kids you know have the money to join intramural teams or a part of after school programs so pe i think is one of those things that it get has such a bad rap for good reasons right like pe has been done very badly for many years But when it's done well, I think it's it's really is the number one thing that we can do to improve the health of our children.
0: I want to talk more about that and health in particular. But because you mentioned it, I guess in your opinion or your perspective, like what is a bad P.E. program and what is a good one? And I mean, I'm assuming the worst is just none because right. No access. But I'm just wondering if you might elaborate a little bit on kind of what the characteristics of a not so good PE program you know, looks like,
1: and also kind of what we would all be striving for, all of our schools should be striving for. So physical education, just like any other subject in school, has model content standards and has sort of a sequential progression. So really good PE in kindergarten is gonna look really different than really good PE in the ninth grade, for example. But if we think about the elementary years, That's the time when a really excellent PE class is developing those foundational movement skills. So kids are learning things like jumping and skipping and executing an overhand throw. They're learning that joy of movement. They're learning collaboration and teamwork and confidence and sort of self-efficacy around movement. In the elementary years, PE should be very little gameplay. It should not be about competition. It shouldn't be splitting, you know, the class into two teams or, heaven forbid, letting, you know, two of the best kids in the class go up and pick kids for their team one by one, right? You think about all of these sort of horror stories from PE or dodgeball, right, where kids are getting pelted in, in the head and going home and crying about it. And it should be things where kids are moving the whole class. So not something like a baseball game where half the class is sitting while one person bats. It should be things where there's a lot of movement involved a lot of cooperation not a whole lot of you're out and you know you get tagged and you sit out but you get tagged and then you keep moving with the person who tagged you so i think there's been a ton of work around best practices you know what a pe class should look like and there's you know exceptional pe teachers out there in training programs but sort of from where i sit as my perspective as a researcher like you said is the biggest barrier is really having ensuring that pe happens in the first place you know, I'm out here in California, and the state law is that elementary students should be getting the equivalent of 20 minutes of PE a day, and that middle school and high school students should be getting 40 minutes of PE a day. And we know, you know, from study after study, and there's been several lawsuits where schools have been sued for being non-compliant with the state PE law. But we know that it's not happening in New York. You know, where I know you are, there's also been similar work where they were discovering. You know, at, at one point, I think it was around 2000. 13 or 14, they found 5% of New York City schools were compliant with the New York State PE law, which is actually a little bit higher than we have here in California. And then New York has gone right? And then New York, but New York then went and turned around and made this massive investment in PE. They've had this program called PE Works that started rolling out about five or six years ago where they were committed to putting a PE teacher and funding a PE teacher for every single elementary school in the city and doing training for teachers and, and, you know, having, holding schools accountable, basically. We're doing some research to evaluate all the work New York City has done right now. But I think a big issue with PE in general is just it's the accountability for it, right? Like it's something, it's, sort of with physical activity in general, right? Everybody knows it's important. We know that we should be doing it. No one's surprised to hear, oh, kids should be moving. It's it's just the reality of making it happen. And especially during a very busy school day where there's so many competing priorities, it's just one of those things that sort of gets shoved to the side, especially if there isn't a dedicated teacher to teach the subject, it then falls to the classroom teacher who may not be properly trained to do it. And so they're like, well, I'm going to finish my science lesson instead of going out in the cold and dragging out a bunch of balls and having the kids run around and maybe get in a fight or whatever. You know, there's just a lot of barriers to doing it well, and it's something that's been very unsupported.
0: Yeah, I just wish that everybody understood that the whole point of this is just to instill a love of movement when we think about that, I mean, it sounds so simple. And though, of course, it's not like given all the complexities and the systems that exist, but it's like, you don't even necessarily need fancy equipment, but having some sort of positive early experience of movement with regularity and kind of just getting in your body, like it just, oh, how do we
1: get the memo out? <laughs> I know. I always say that we need, you know, we need some sort of public service campaign, at least for P.E. specifically. But I think another thing that families, really you know, out sort of outside of the school world, I think that family movement is incredibly important, especially for younger kids, finding things that you can do as a whole family and also finding things, you know, that aren't, you know, a typical, it's not the whole family needs to go for a 10-mile run together, right? It's walking the dog, it's raking the leaves in the front yard or shoveling the front walk, it's scrubbing the bathtub, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. his physical activity right it gets your heart beating faster it gets you sweating it gets you breathing harder all of those things and i think covid you know the the shelter in place has been just such a fascinating Time for physical activity and people who do physical activity work and research. One, for any of us who have kids or know anybody with kids, and especially people who live in, you know, places like New York City where there's small apartments and they're, you know, people were literally were scared to leave their homes for a while there. You kind of front hand, you see what it what happens to your child when they're sitting in a desk all day or when they're trapped in a really small space. And then so not only do you see that sort of the the not release of the physical energy that a lot of kids just genuinely need, they have to to get those wiggles out, but the mental health implications for that also just, and I think as a society and then just how park usage has sort of just shot up since the pandemic has come into place, like bike sales are through the roof, right? There's like, bike stores can't keep bikes in in stock. There's a whole new movement around home fitness um, and people, you know, can't find dumbbells anywhere. And so I think people are also recognizing the role in a very different way that physical activity can play in mental health how do you define health? Like
0: as a someone that works in this field, I think that's sort of important because health can become a kind of complicated, loaded subject or loaded
1: word. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, sort of from a research perspective, depending on what type of study we're doing. So we did this Cluster randomized control trial in seventy nine schools across California to determine whether or not school based BMI screening and reporting is effective for staving off weight gain in students or help students do sending reports, BMI reports home to parents help students lose weight, or do they have unintended consequences? And so in this study, you know, our primary outcome was BMI. And sort of in that study, that's how we defined health for that outcome. But another part of the study said, well, BMI is certainly not the only thing that's important to look at. What are some potential unintended consequences of this type of approach. And, you know, so then we looked at stigmatization of students. We looked at unhealthy weight control behaviors. We looked at family and peer talk around weight. So we looked at all sorts of other sort of mental and social components that come along with it. So for that specific study, you know, we had those kind of specific outcomes and other studies were we'll look at cardiovascular fitness in students. So we'll look at their VO2 max. But I think, you know, Personally, and we don't often get to do a study where we really holistically are able to measure health in the way that I sort of conceptualize it, you know, as a parent and a mother and, you know, just a person, but thinking about it sort of from this whole child approach, which is I think a lot of schools are trying to move towards, isn't, you know, a student isn't just their grades or their academic output. It is, you know, their physical health matters, your mental health matters, your socio emotional health matters. You know, it's not just being free of disease, it's being happy. It's having all of these other things in place that enable you to live a healthy and life, whatever that looks like for you and your body. You're making
0: a really interesting point that I don't think I thought about because we get very like persnickety about this word health because we want Mm -hmm. everyone to sort of reimagine this word, right? To be this more holistic version. And, our project has definitely adopted that health at every size kind of let's take a social justice look at this and think of health as a resource that, you know, not everybody has equal access to. But what you're saying is for the purposes of any given research study, you have to have a kind of measured definition of health. You can't necessarily have it be I was going to say amorphous, but it sounds like it's hard to use a more holistic definition of health as from like a scientific perspective, because you have to be sort of more granular about what you're looking at.
1: Is that fair to say? Definitely. I think, well, if you want it, you know, doing something, right, you need to be able to quantify it, right? And so we, there's plenty of researchers who do work in a more qualitative space where you do interviews and you have sort of the time and space to kind of talk. For example, you could talk to students about their BMI screening experience in schools and what does this mean and how does this make you feel and how does this impact your health, however that student or you know, child defines their health. And that's certainly one way to get about that question. But if you're trying to think from sort of a more rigorous perspective of does this actually impact students' BMI, right? So BMI screening and reporting has been, it's a practice that's I think it's something like 40 out of 51, including Washington, D.C., screen students, um, BMI in school. And I think about half of those send reports home to parents. And so um, and there's several states that have been doing it for years, like Arkansas did it for many, many years. Massachusetts did it for many years. And then there's a huge uproar from parents we are saying they're calling them fat letters. Why are you sending these home about our children? These are using stigmatizing language. And so there's been this debate in sort of the research and school health community for years as to whether or not this is an effective tool um, and whether or not it's harmful. And this was sort of the first study that really definitively says, no, this does not impact students' BMI. This, and there are some unintended consequences, right? It does make some students feel uncomfortable. Um, more than half of the students in our study said that other students in the class could see them being weighed and they didn't like that, right? For the most part, students don't like that. And there are best practices around doing it, which is different than obviously what actually ends up happening in schools. And so I think being able to quantitatively say after, you know, looking at data from 30,000 students over three years, you know, to be able to say, hey, no, this doesn't actually impact students' weight. The whole primary reason schools do this is because they say this is a relatively inexpensive um, and hot, low touch, but important, you know, potentially really important way to get messaging to a lot of parents and potentially impact, the, positively impact the health of a lot of students. But if you think about it, right, it's a single letter that's coming home. A lot of times, you know, what does BMI even mean? And we really thoughtfully designed these letters in collaboration with parents. We didn't use stigmatizing language like obesity. You know, we tried to, you know, make it really understandable. But most parents, a lot of parents didn't even remember receiving the letter And then most parents who remembered receiving the letter weren't surprised by the information that the letter contained. So sort of the process by which this letter is supposed to, this BMI report is supposed to change students' weight, it's totally faulty. It doesn't change the environment that that family lives in. It doesn't change the student's you know, their home environment. It doesn't change what parents are able to afford to buy or their cooking skills or any of their other knowledge. It doesn't change the parks in their neighborhood. It doesn't change PE in their schools. It doesn't change all the things that we know would really actually Im- impact. You might, and then just puts all the onus back on the parents saying, you're doing something wrong. You need to fix your child and gives no actual real help in doing so. So we don't think it's a good practice. It seems like not such a great practice,
0: and yet you're describing evidence to support how it's essentially useless slash harmful. And if anything, it could have a sort of stigmatizing effect. What you're also saying is that it doesn't do anything to affect the social determinants of health. And something that we don't in mainstream ways of thinking about things, we don't consider that. We really do as a culture believe that it's just about working harder or it's just about, you know, buying into sort of whatever the culture is selling in terms of what healthy looks like or what, you know, the beauty ideals promote. And so what you are saying is sort of highlighting how this particular intervention, it doesn't even address any of the other stuff. It just sort of puts a little letter and perhaps a little shame on somebody. There's a part of me that's also like, why are we looking at weight, you know, in the first place? Like, why are we looking at this in the first place as though it's some sort of symptom of something problematic, especially like what you were saying before. And we've talked to other researchers too, that like BMI is hardly a perfect metric for like health and, and someone with a quote high BMI in the quote obese range could literally have, I guess what you were saying, kind of cardiovascularly be in top shape. Like we wouldn't necessarily know. I guess I
1: wonder: was there any consideration for that, or, or not at all? No, absolutely. I mean, I think again, we you have to have a hard outcome, and I think the primary intention behind BMI reporting in schools has been as a weight reduction strategy, or j- sort of as an obesity prevention strategy. Um, and so, I think we were using BMI as an outcome to really. And that's where a lot of the debate has been around the practice, right? Is, is this helping kids? Um, and so we needed to choose a heart outcome. In California, students in the fifth, seventh, and ninth grade take the fitness gram, which is a battery of six different tests, one of them being body composition, and almost everybody does BMI, but they also do what's called the, a 20-meter shuttle run or a mile run. They do push-ups and sit-ups. So we also did another, a little sub-study, a sub-analysis within this larger study to look and seeing, okay, well, does sending students fitness? results home change that, you know, help change that that weight trajectory? Or does it help improve their fitness scores by knowing what their fitness? And we also found that that also didn't change. So we were able to look at those outcomes as well, um, because that's also something that's collected and that's used. But I think a lot of it does come back to sort of the logistics of carrying out a strong study in which you have to have a well-defined outcome that can be collected with fidelity across a large population. And then again, we use surveys for some of those unintended consequences or those most socio-emotional outcomes. It's a frustrating thing about this kind of work is you're always limited by your measures, right? What you're able to measure without a whole lot of confounding or without measurement error or other sorts of things often determines what we're able to study. And especially when you're doing something at large scale with students and in schools, you're also incredibly limited, right? It's not like a little study where we're in a lab and we have 30 kids come in and we can do all sorts of crazy, fun, really interesting stuff. If you're talking about kind of that population health level, you have to think about what's really feasible at scale and, you know, within a, within a budget.
0: Yeah, no, completely.
1: I do think it's important
0: for us to hear this too, because we can and need to be sort of idealists. We want to put forth this sort of paradise where like stigma is gone and, People of all sizes can go to gym class and be included and not shamed. And and I think that a lot has to change societally in order to kind of get to that place. But I think it's important for us to hear sort of how these findings come about. And I think a lot of our listeners have with us sort of embraced a more holistic definition of health and hear BMI and think bullshit. Like that's sort of how their brains now translating it, which is good. You know, we don't want them to sort of, we want people to think critically about that stuff, especially because there is so much harm that that sort of stigmatizing language can can cause. But I also think it's important to know that these measures are, I mean, in a way we, we need them in order to prove that they're not so useful, right, from a scientific perspective. Right. What are you finding, like what children are at a higher risk for poor health and things like inactivity.
1: So the recommendation is that school-aged kids, so like ages, you know, 5 or 6 to about 17 or 18, get 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. And the latest numbers from the CDC show that less than 25% of school-aged children get 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. So really, it's, it's most kids. It's not, you know, we can't point to a single group and say, here's where the problem is. We do know, though, that unfortunately a lot of the same students who are at risk for other poor outcomes are also at risk for inactivity. A lot depends on the neighborhood you live in, your uh, parents' education, your race, ethnicity. We also know that as kids age, they're less likely to be active. So middle school, we often see sort of a precipitous drop off in physical activity for kids, particularly for girls. Um, And then as you get to high school, it it sort of gets worse. And there's so many different reasons for that. There are cultural reasons and gender norms and not wanting to sweat in front of your classmates and not I mean there's just so many reasons but we also know it doesn't have to be that way right we've seen plenty of environments that are very supportive of physical activity and and for physical activity in school in particular and that families you know and then you also see the other extreme where families are putting their five-year-olds into competitive single sports and you know solo tracking them from a really early age and that is certainly and by no means what I'm advocating for but we know that it, it really is a problem across the board, it's a problem for most adults as well. We also know that as American adults, we're also not meeting the physical activity. The majority of us are not meeting the physical activity recommendations. But I I am hopeful, you know, I think there was a lot of hope when Michelle Obama, you know, sort of made Let's Move her her platform was all around um, physical activity and, and getting kids to move. And I think there was more of a national conversation around it. I truly do believe with the pandemic, I think, at least in parents' minds, who are obviously, Often the most, the strongest advocates and the best advocates for improving. Th- programs in schools. I think parents have tremendous potential to advocate for better, you know, better physical education and physical activity programming in schools, having it, be you know, when you go on a school tour, do you have PE, right? <laughs> do you offer this? Do you offer that? Sort of making it as part of a priority when you're thinking about your child's education. I think there's movement that way. And even now we have a new national, uh, the federal education legislation it used to be No Child Left Behind, which was just horrible for physical activity. And now We have the Every Student Succeeds Act, which has a much more of a whole child holistic approach. And for the first time, physical education is part of the Federal Education Act, which means now federal education dollars can go towards physical education and can go towards physical activity. And so I think things like that are really important to sort of moving the lever, moving things in the right direction. But we still have a very long way um, to go until we sort of normalize and make it a really important and positive part of. the school experience are part of, you know, sort of family life, family experience. Yeah. Like that
0: value. I mean, almost like upping the value of it and sort of demystifying what it, I do think a lot of people think it needs to look a certain way. Like it needs to be on a peloton or it needs to be in this sort of elitist kind of way this, right. And totally, and it doesn't. And I don't know, it'll be interesting. I don't, you'll tell me, I suppose, if anybody's researching, like literally what is happening with COVID. Cause I feel like go noodle and (laughs) like go noodle and just like literally running around the apartment is becoming the PE
1: of our times. I know. Yeah. I always say, like I have so much hope and then, you know, it's very two steps forward, one step back, but I think, I'm hopeful that as PE improves, as physical activity, you know, sort of as parents are actually now watching what their kids are doing during the school day. So many parents are saying, oh, this is what, you know, this looks like. I think, you know, I'm hoping there can be sort of a shift. And I've actually heard from PE teachers during this time where they've actually found PE, you know, middle school and high school PE teachers have found PE during teaching PE virtually has been really successful because kids feel like they can work out and sweat in the comfort of their own home or they don't feel embarrassed to be doing something because nobody else can be seeing them and they can go off and... Do whatever they want to do and report back. And obviously that, you know, requires a certain amount of trust. But I think for some students, it might, you know, who may not traditionally succeed in a typical physical education program, being able to do what works for them when it works for them is actually a really important teaching tool, right? Like nobody's, you know, once you graduate, nobody's checking to see if you went to the gym, nobody's checking to see if you did your push-ups for the day. So it's sort of helping to build those habits in and in, in saying, okay, you're gonna I'm not watching you do it. But if it's important to you, if you notice the difference. And I think really good P teachers can help kids make that connection. I used to do an activity with my kids. Again, I taught middle school where we would go for a walk for thirty minutes, and I taught sort of we go kind of on these hilly walks, like a little field trip for thirty minutes, and then the last fifteen minutes we'd come back and they'd have to reflect on how they felt before they went for the walk, and then how how they felt after they went for the walk, and then we would talk about it. And I think that's such a simple, but how you know it's something you can easily do with your children, right? How are you feeling right now? My legs are wiggly, like I want to, mo- you know, this or that. I'm fighting with my brother, and then you go out and do something and say, how do you feel now? You know, I feel more restful. I feel feel more peaceful these are sort of conversations i have with my kids also where it's sort of helping to make that connection and for adults as well right i think a lot of people had pe experiences where you'd get in trouble so you'd have to run extra laps exercise was literally a punishment for many of us growing up right and so you have that sort of connection and you know i think like a lot of people i've been doing a lot more at home fitness and an instructor you know i love is saying you know you're here this is a privilege this is not a punishment like you're here you're doing something for yourself and i think taking sort of that mindset and mentality with your kids. Like, how lucky are you that you get to go run around right now, that we get to be outside, that we're not sitting on the couch, that you're not sitting in front of your computer screen? So I think exactly like you're saying, I mean, again, it puts the onus on the parent, right, to sort of help with that framing and with that bind shift. But I think as a society, if we can sort of shift away from, I have to exercise because I want to, you know, I, because I need to lose weight to being like, I get to exercise because my body is strong and I want to be out of the house and, or I want to be in that, you know, or I need this to maintain my mental health or my sanity right now, I think is a, is an important shift if we can do that.
0: I love that. And it's so, I mean, I can imagine some parents, myself included, try it out with like my 6 year olds, people will be like, feel the same, you know, like, but, but I always say to people, even if you get this sort of like eye roll in response, like to keep asking, I love that question because it does, it fosters this embodiment, like just to check in with yourself and notice, like, did anything change? And if we can just keep asking that of our kids and ourselves, truthfully, we'd probably better balanced. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. This has been, you've been so generous with your time with me. And the one thing that we sort of like to do is ask based on all that, you know, all your lived experience and pulling from the science that you're aware of. If you had to tell the folks listening to this podcast today to take away one thing that they could do on the regular to help their children fully bloom, what's the one thing you would advise them to do?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I would say to find joy and movement with your children. So find things that you can do together as a family that you all enjoy, that help you connect, but also help you move and feel good about yourself. I love that
0: answer. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a real treat to hear about your work and just your experience both in the gym classroom and also in the
1: in the lab, so to speak. I think our listeners will, will feel the same way. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for having me. So
0: that's today's show.
1: As always, if you like what
0: you're hearing and you want to support the show, rate us, review us. Share this episode with a friend, and you can do this wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune back in next time for more Body Positive Parenting Wisdom.